Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., they help high achievers enjoy their lives more fully, manage their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Yes, I vote because I feel like as an African-American female, like I want my voice to be heard. Um, Conservative values. So I vote very conservative. So I try to vote for candidates that have very conservative viewpoints. Oh, I don't vote anymore now. Why not? Um, Just because I don't. um... I vote because it is our right to vote. And I take it seriously. This is San Diego Decides, a podcast by Voice of San Diego. I'm Sarah Libby, and I'm here with my pal, Rye Rivard. Hey, Sarah Libby. Hey. All right. We are here for the last podcast before the big day, primary day in San Diego. June 7th. That's when it is. So um, you're going to be hearing a little less from me and Rye in this episode than normal, which is devastating, obviously. But we're going to make up for it by bringing in um, some of our Voice of San Diego reporters and editors who have been covering um, a bunch of races and issues happening. Um, And we're going to do a little lightning round. So you're going to hear from a lot of people about a lot of races and issues. Buckle up. City council races, state ballot measures, city ballot measures, all kinds of good stuff. So, you know, Rye mentioned June 7th is the primary election. Um, I learned a fun fact today. Are you ready for it? Yes. So state law requires that employers give workers two hours to vote during the day if they're not able to make it to the polls, you know, in the morning or after work. And to take advantage of that you need to give your employer two days notice. So you have no excuses, folks. That's a pretty that's a pretty great perk of living in California. All right. So let's kick things off because we have a lot to talk about. So let's start it off with city council and we're going to go numerically because how else would we do it? But there's one thing you need to know about city races if you don't already know it. And it's that these things could be all over on June 7th. That means... Um, If the candidate gets 50% of the vote plus one, so that's not 51% of the vote, but that's if 1,000 people are voting and 501 people uh, vote for one of two or any number of candidates in a race, the person with 50% plus one vote wins. So this is a primary unlike many other state or city primaries across the country where it really is decided on June 7th, many races. The word primary kind of signals that that it's the first to come but it might be the only race to come so we'll see which one of these gets wrapped up in the next week we're joined by ashley mcglone who's been covering the district one city council race ashley what's going on in district one so we've got a field of candidates, uh, two of which have been in the race the longest. We've got Democrat Barbara Bree and Republican Ray Ellis. Uh, they've both uh, been on the campaign trail and have been selling uh, their business acumen and backgrounds, saying they are uh, you know, smart enough and intelligent enough and have achieved great success both in the nonprofit sector and the business sector um, and, and are suited to represent this affluent coastal community. Uh, Barbara Bree is a high-tech entrepreneur who's had quite a bit of success uh, in her past with helping to found Pro Flowers, um, was one of the big ones. Um, She continues to invest with her husband in small startup companies, um, has had mixed success in that in recent years. Um, And then you have Ray Ellis, who uh, also created some of his own companies, starting with a jet ski company back in the day, um, followed up with a mailing, what is it, direct mailing advertisement company. um, And he managed to sell that and, and make a career out of that. And then he's, for the last 10 years, spent most of his time volunteering in the nonprofit sector. So one of the things that I've found interesting about this race is that you have somebody who's a clear Democrat and a clear Republican. And yet a lot of the ways in which they've been needling each other are sort of over things that they mostly agree on. So when it comes to the stadium issue, both are pretty clear in that they don't support public funding of a stadium. There's some nuance there, which I'll let you flesh out. But 
and and also um, this issue of pension reform has come up um, and candidates in some other districts have suggested maybe we should revisit certain pieces of pension reform and they both seem to think no, we shouldn't. Prop B is settled, but but there still is that needling of like, well, maybe Barbara Bree doesn't fully support pension reform, or maybe she does support public funding of a stadium, uh, even though like there doesn't seem to be a ton of daylight between them on those issues. But w- what's Barbara Bree's, um, you know, position on a stadium and and funding? Right. So she has been. Uh, she came out and endorsed the citizens' plan um, put forth by a coalition of folks, including you know. Um, longtime agitator, uh, attorney Corey Briggs. Um, and that paves a path um, and clears some environmental hurdles for a potential stadium in downtown. But it actually prohibits, as I understand it, public funding for the stadium. And it actually aims primarily to, to facilitate a, the convention center expansion in downtown. Um, and, it, and I think it would also prohibit a convention center expansion on the waterfront, which Bree supports. Um, it also provides for various redevelopment of the Qualcomm site. But yeah, she's come out and categorically said no public funding for a stadium. Uh, Ellis has criticized her on that point. Um, kind of saying, hey, well, if it's going to be this joint convadium, convention center stadium, uh, can you really draw such a clear line down the middle like that? Um, and and again, she's still been, I believe, adamant uh, that that she thinks she can make that decision and or, or that that distinction. Um, and when the time comes for the city council, if, if it does, to move forward with an actual stadium vote, that she would oppose it. So that's kind of where things stand on that. And then the big issue, perhaps the biggest issue in D1 that we've seen, and you've heard from many impassioned D1 residents over the last month or so, is the issue of vacation rentals. So what is the deal? This one seems a little bit more straightforward as far as far as where they both stand. Um, Ellis recognizes that there's definitely some community complaints and concerns, um, wants to see them permitted, wants to see them go through a neighborhood input process, but doesn't oppose entire home whole house rentals where the homeowner is not necessarily on the site. Barbara Bree, on the other hand, who's been endorsed by the Safe San Diego Neighborhoods Group, which is against those sorts of uh, rentals like Airbnb, um, she opposes entirely entire home listings that the owner isn't on the site. She's okay with sort of guest houses or room shares if they're properly permitted, if their regulations are enforced. Um, so that's, again, where those lines are sort of drawn. And that is a very much more clear distinction, I think. And then there are a couple other people in the race, including Bruce Leitner, husband of current city council president, uh, Sherry Leitner. Uh, what are they up to? Are they real contenders? Are they just in the race to crowd the field? What's going on with them? There's definitely been some concerns and questions about kind of motivations there. I, I've been assured by all parties that, uh, you know, there was no coordination behind the scenes by Ray or Barbara uh, to stack the the ballot uh, for their favor or or their opponent's disfavor. Um, Bruce, I know, I think has declined to, to show up to some of the debates and community forums and folks have question his level of commitment to the race. Um, uh, the others, Luis Rodolico and Kyle Hyscala, um, have been showing up and have been vocalizing their sort of desires and, and wishes for the area. Luis's primary platform, it seems, to have to do with the Regent's Bridge and wanting to push for that project. Um, whereas Kyle, um, again, he's a staffer of, of Sherry, um, but maybe isn't quite as focused on the bridge, at least. <laughs> All right, now we have our friend Lisa, who's back to talk about District 3 and the basics on who's in the race and what the major issues are that have come up in those neighborhoods. What's up, Lisa? Well, in this race, we have two Democrats that are facing off. We've got Chris Ward, who is the chief of staff to State Senator Marty Block, and Anthony Bernal, who works for Todd Gloria right now, um, current city councilman, um, as the director of business and community projects. Um, One thing I'll say right off the bat is that these two candidates have a lot in common in terms of their positions. So what I'm going to try to focus on most is where they differ. Please do. So uh, the first thing maybe we could talk about is the chargers. So this has been an issue since the beginning of the campaign where they actually did differentiate themselves but have come to the same positions. So early on, Chris Ward had said he would not support any public financing of a stadium. Initially, Anthony Bernal had been kind of seen maybe if this uh, Chargers plan initially would work for him. Uh, 
after going to and knocking on a lot of doors, he's changed his position on this, now says that he would not support um, any public financing for a stadium. But some of the reasons uh, why they oppose this are a little bit different. Um, Anthony Bernal uh, is is opposing the citizens plan right now because he is really concerned about having a contiguous convention center. Um, and uh, bo- But both do oppose a downtown stadium. Uh, they're really not interested in having that stadium downtown and are concerned that it could take away from potential um, opportunities, in particular for businesses, tech companies in East Village. So that's one issue. Uh, next, I guess I could talk about um, the donation issue that's been a really huge flashpoint in more recent weeks. Um, so Anthony Bernal had received uh, about $1,000 from uh, Doug Manchester, former UT owner, hotel magnate, and uh, past supporter of Proposition 8, which was a campaign to uh, oppose gay marriage in California. So this, as much has been made of this, because District 3 has long been the seat that a gay council member has held. So Tony Atkins, Chris Kehoe, and latest Todd Gloria have held this seat. Um, Chris Ward is, is openly gay. Because of this donation, lots of folks have raised concerns about why Doug Manchester supports Anthony Bernal. They've said, you know, maybe he would not like to see a gay council member in office. Um, Anthony has been quick to say, I do not agree with with Doug Manchester when it comes to gay marriage, but obviously had accepted the donation. Um, I think a related issue that we have here is that uh, a lot of more uh, l- uh, right-leaning folks have supported Anthony Bernal, um, where Chris Ward has taken on a lot of the the more Democratic endorsements. And one of the issues that I actually spent some time talking to a lot of the different business folks and developers who have endorsed Anthony Bernal, and they've said, well, he's the guy that they know. He has been assigned to work in uh, Councilman Gloria's District D3. Um, he's been working with a lot of the businesses, and he's also come out against the state minimum wage increase, which a lot of restaurant owners and others are concerned about. So there is a sense that he's been spending more time and actually is just is assigned to interact with folks downtown. And so he said that's why he's getting a lot of these endorsements, endorsements and it doesn't have anything to do with his position in particular um, on gay marriage. Another issue I want to hit, too, uh, one that I've spent a lot of time looking at is Balboa Park. Um, Both candidates uh, say that they are concerned about the infrastructure needs that the park has, which are estimated to be about $300 million. And that doesn't there are a lot of things that aren't on that uh, needs list. So. Chris Ward would like to have a stakeholder group take a look at potential funding and prioritization um, options for the park. Where Maybe something like a, a task force? A task Wouldn't that force. be great if the city created a task force to address a problem? I would prefer a blue ribbon commission that would show they're taking they're both it seriously. Good. They're both good options. Yeah. so It's never happened before. <laughs> a new thing in San Diego. Uh, so, but, but. Uh, Anthony Bernal actually supports a general obligation bond, which would require a tax increase. Um, he's kind of changed his messaging on this a little bit. Initially, he had said that maybe it just should be for Balboa Park because there's just such a, you know, it's such a, such a gem for San Diego as a whole. Um, but in more recent debates and other times I've heard him talk about this, he seems to be broadening and saying maybe we could make this something to support all parks in San Diego and Balboa Park would get a chunk of it. You know, one thing that's been interesting, though, is that Bernal uh, has had some conflicts over endorsements. He got Kevin Faulkner's endorsement, uh, and that was uh, some consternation for Democrats. And then he's also gotten some uh, endorsements that were sort of not really endorsements. Tell us a little bit about this endorsement uh, kerfuffle. Well, first off, I can confirm that he did get uh, an endorsement from Mayor Kevin Faulkner, um, who is a Republican. And Faulkner says that he supports Anthony Bernal because he's worked with Bernal in the past and believes that he has a proven track record in the district. Now, when it comes to the endorsements that we're not so sure about, um, KPBS had done a really good story uh, recently this past week, um, illuminating the fact that there were some names on Anthony Bernal's endorsement list of folks who said that they hadn't actually endorsed him. 
Um, Anthony had an interesting response to that. He said that uh, through his spokesman had said that maybe there was some confusion. You know, he was pushing for these folks support and he believed that he had their endorsement. Uh, But maybe later on, Chris Ward came and talked to them and then they changed their positioning. Um, Can I just throw a little bit of cold water on this? I think these are sort of like the lowest hanging fruit of political stories. Not to say, you know, if if somebody didn't endorse them, you know, you shouldn't say that they did. But I think if you went through every candidate's list, you could find someone for virtually every... Th- this is just something that comes up all the time. And I it's, it's a little, like, hard for me to get worked up about. Maybe it's something voters you know, care about and see as dishonest, but it's just, you cover enough of these campaigns and it's like, they all have little boo-boos on their endorsement list. Well, and you smiled at me, so that was an endorsement, right? (laughs) Exactly. I do endorse you, Lisa. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) All right, so now we're going to talk about two more city council races. We're going to splice these two together. Sorry, not sorry about that. Um, You know, we're talking about all these races and these are, I'm going to say, the lowest profile city council races that are happening this time around. So our pal Andy Keats is going to tell us what's going on in those races um, and why they've been a little quieter than the rest. Yeah, so this is for District 5 and District 7, and they've been quieter than the rest for the simple reason that no incumbent has lost a city council race in something like 25 years. Um, So, which is not to say that it's impossible, but it is certainly uh, unlikely that any incumbent is going to lose. So the incumbents running in these races in District 5 are uh, Mark Kersey, who uh, will now have gone eight years without any real challenge. Um, he was elected unopposed uh, in, into an open seat that was being vacated by Carl DeMaio while he was running for office. Uh, he does have opposition from Frank Simbukakis, who is uh, endorsed by the Democratic Party but hasn't been able to raise much money, so won't, hasn't really put together uh, much of a full-throated campaign. And uh, political newcomer Keith Mikus, uh, I believe is how his name is pronounced. Um, so those are the other other people on the ballot, but uh, Mark Kersey has um, every expectation of winning going away. Uh, and then in District 7, uh, also a... Uh, incumbent uh, Republican Scott Sherman is running. He has uh, something uh, of a more, um, you know, established opposition. He's running against uh, Justin DeCesar, who received the San Diego Democratic Party uh, endorsement and has put together a little bit of a mon- of money and uh, has something of a campaign. And um, also in another uh, Democrat named Jose Caballero. Jose uh, has kind of fashioned himself as the the true Bernie Sanders type of progressive in the race in all in the entire city really um so i think there's if if there's something to look at in either of these two races it's that district 7 maybe has a better chance than district 5 of uh de caesar and caballero combining to to put together enough votes to keep sherman below 50 and push it to November. That's still not something I would consider a likelihood, but uh, that's, you know, it's, it's certainly more likely in than in District 5. Um, and they uh, are just a little bit more of uh, what I would call serious candidates. And what's going on in these districts? Um, Charger Stadium is a big deal. Kersey's an infrastructure guy. Presumably mm-hmm. folks in his district care about his involvement in that. Yeah, the, the D- District Five is uh, is is the wealthy north uh, east portion of the city, Rancho Bernardo, and that that sort of area. Um, so it, it's kind of a Republican stronghold, and yes, they've had they they are often um, talking about infrastructure. Although it's interesting that that both DeMaio and Kersey have been so uh, hell bent on that issue when 
if you spend much time up there, their infrastructure needs Not are bad. <laughs> certainly much lower than than the you know south of eight uh, neighborhoods. Um, but yeah, that, I think that's that's something that Kersey has spent the last four years on, basically. Uh, District seven, yeah, is, uh, is is the the area just north of um, of the eight, uh, kind of that that middle middle portion of the city, like that the waistband of the city, um, and it. Uh, <laughs> It, it is home to Qualcomm Stadium right now, so that has the future of that site and Sherman's support for a relatively intensive development plan to go along with the Charger Stadium there has become somewhat device, uh, divisive. Uh, DeCesar has hit him on that uh, proposal. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I would say that's probably the biggest issue in that race. Big question in Scott Sherman's race if he is reelected, serves another term on the city council, is he going to stop talking about how he's not a politician? Uh, good question. I actually, it's probably probably worth checking in whether he's been saying that lately. <laughs> still, like while running for reelection, if that's been part of his his claim. Uh, it's I, one of I my say, favorite like politician standbys. Politician yeah. insists he is not politician. Uh, one thing that I think while running to continue being a co- politician, <laughs> someone who has upended their life to enter the world of politics. Uh, one thing to to check that I think is is pretty possible is if uh, Ray Ellis were to win in District One, which you guys will also talk about in the show. Uh, I think there's a good chance that Scott Sherman would be the uh, Republicans' choice as City Council President. All right, now our own Ry Rivard is going to tell us about District 9. This is another race where it's sort of an intra-party battle um, between Democrats um, in a pretty interesting district. What is happening, Ry? So they're vying to replace Marty Emerald, a city councilwoman who's not running again. She's a Democrat. Um, Everybody in the race is is a Democrat. Um, D9, of course, is uh, City Heights, Kensington Talmadge, the college area. And uh, you have, uh, you know, really four candidates in the race. Ricardo Flores, who is the chief of staff to Councilwoman Emerald. Um, you have Georgette Gomez, who's a longtime environmental advocate, uh, Environmental Health Coalition. Um, so has done a lot of work in Barrio Logan, um, you know, fighting uh, to get some of the industrial sites away from some of the, the residential homes there. Um, you have Sarah Saez, uh, who, who works on behalf of uh, taxi cab drivers in the city, and uh, Araceli Martinez, uh, who's a uh, family law attorney, education law attorney. And, uh, you know, the race has uh, been sort of a, a mixture of uh, trying to uh, kind of tweak uh, the focus of the city council, uh, you know, representation for that area. Uh, Marty Emerald's from in the, uh, the college area. She lives in the college area now. Um, so uh, Sarah Saez, uh, Georgette Gomez, and Araceli Martinez uh, are in particular talking about uh, trying to get some more money uh, for the sort of City Heights area. Um, and uh, Ricardo Flores lives uh, in, in Talmadge, Kensington, um, and has been trying to talk about how he can continue uh, with the legacy of Marty Emerald. Um, and, and everybody's talking about trying to get more more money for the district pretty much uh, and, and uh, you know, how to make improvements there that, um, you know, a lot of residents feel a long time coming. One of the interesting things to look for on election day is who shows up at the polls, City Heights. Uh, the districts in City Heights generally don't show up as, as much as um, the areas, uh, the voters from Kensington and Talmadge. And that, that creates uh, some interesting dynamics when the district is, is a lot of people of color, um, but they're not necessarily the ones um, who, who show up most. Now we're joined by Maya Krishnan, who's been covering the County Board of Supervisors District 3 race, which is in mostly North County, some north parts of the city. Maya, what's going on in D3 county version? So in the D3 county version, um, I would say that there are three Board of Supervisor races this coming up in November, and this is the only competitive one. Um, It has one Democrat, Dave Roberts, who is the current supervisor of the district, and then two Republicans, Kristen Gaspar, who's the mayor of Encinitas, and Sam Abed, who's the mayor of Escondido. Um, So this race 
D3 is a, I would call it a swing district. It's pretty much split between Republicans and Democrats, and then there's a large swing vote, so it can go either way. Um, People in this district tend to be fiscally conservative, um, but they really support strong environmental measures and really want to protect their neighborhoods and, and things like that. So it's a really tight race. And both Abed and Gaspar have said that they decided to run against Roberts because of his scandal um, that happened last year. So basically, he had some issues with former employees, and it ended up in a civil lawsuit that was settled by the county for, I think, over 300000 um, in taxpayer funds. And that's something that both his opponents are, you know, they, they say that it's a huge problem uh, and that that's the reason why he needs to be replaced now and not when his term is up in 2020. So two of the biggest issues in this race, uh, policy-wise, are environmental issues and development and kind of where the county is going in terms of where it's going to build housing and where future development goes, and then um, basically the budget and fiscal issues with the county. So the county manages about a $5 billion budget, um, and it has a really good credit rating right now. And I think that one of the things that separates Republicans and Democrats at the county when it comes to these elections is how much of that reserve that they have that they're going to be spending on social services. So in the Democratic Party, you know, they might spend more on on CalFresh or CalWorks and some of those social services, which the county manages. Um, And I think if you're a Republican on the board, then you kind of will be a little more conservative with those those expenditures. is a lot of money to a lot of people. It is. It is. And I mean, if you live anywhere in the county, whether you're in the city of San Diego or if you're up in Valley Center, um, you get your social services and you're a low income person, you get your social services from the county. Um, That's one area that it touches just everyone's lives. Um, And then in terms of development, uh, a really big issue is the county's general plan and where future development is going to go. And this is definitely an issue that um, divides Roberts from Gaspar and Abed. Dave Roberts, you know, as he has voted in the past, he generally uh, tends to favor growth within how the general plan is laid out, which um, kind of keeps housing and development where it already exists. And there are several big projects that are in line at the county that are looking to build outside of, of that growth plan. One of them is the Lilac Hills Ranch Project, um, which was going through the county and is now trying to get on the ballot. And if it does get on the ballot, it will be something that the candidates will be allowed to talk about and take positions on because they won't be voting on the project since it'll be going to the voters. And I think that Gaspar and Abed are probably more development friendly um, and more willing to um, allow amendments through when they view the general plan as more of a fluid document uh, where you know, they can kind of have growth elsewhere. And both of them have also come out against the Sandag tax measure, and they kind of think that there needs to be more freeways. And so it's kind of taking growth in a different direction than some people in the county might want it to see. Great. Thank you. All right. Now we're going to talk about a race that, you know, you might not know much about unless you're a listener of the Good Schools for All podcast, which who isn't? Everyone is. <laughs> Everyone is. Um, so our pal Mario Cran is going to sort of just talk about the County Office of Ed, which is a relatively obscure agency. Um, but this time around, the races for that board um, are actually pretty exciting. So he's going to tell us why that is. All right. So like many people, I wasn't quite sure what the county Board of Education did and how it was different from just like a regular school district or why it was a big deal. But uh, we'll explain some of that. So four of the five spots on the County Board of Education are, are up for grabs. So this is sort of a, a replacement time for, for the board. And they're also going to be possibly picking a new superintendent. We're not sure if uh, the current county superintendent, Randy Ward, is going to stay on or if he's going to leave or what exactly that's going to look. But that's all going to come down to the next board. So there are nine candidates vying for four spots. So you did a good job, I think, of explaining what the county office 
of Ed does, um, one thing that they do is they pick a superintendent. Uh Um, But the thing that I found most interesting when you examine this race is that there's kind of an interesting tension playing out with charter schools, just like there is all over the state. So what is the Office of Ed's role? Um, How do they interact with charter schools and why are charter schools a big deal in this race? Sure. So one thing that I learned about the County Board of Ed as I was doing this story was that um, they actually don't have as much uh, authority as the San Diego Unified School Board, which is a K-12 school board. So the the Randy Ward, as the county office of superintendent, actually has more power and more authority. So when it comes to like collective bargaining agreements, he would be the one that, that approves that. Where in a K-12 district like San Diego Unified, that stuff all goes to uh, the, the school board. But one thing, one reason that the County Board of Education does matter is when it comes to charter schools. So charter schools go through a review process when they're first opening and then every several years that's sort of laid out when they're granted a petition. But if a charter school gets denied, let's say, let's just use it this way. If, a, if I'm a guy that wants to open a charter school in San Diego Unified, I would write a petition and that would go to the district staff. That would be a, like an application for a school board. Um, they could shoot me down or they could approve it. If they shoot me down, I could appeal it to the County Board of Education um, and they review it. They say they see whether my charter school is, uh, is financially viable, if I've got a good education plan. And that appeal would go to the County Board of Education. So this is one reason because this, this uh, decision would, would go in front of the school board and, and they would either uh, uh, you know, a, a deny it or, or approve it. So in general, since we're not going to do a rundown of each of the many districts, um, is the trend that the challengers tend to be more accepting of charters and backed by charters or the incumbents already accepting of charters? How does that dynamic play yeah, out? Yeah, so we see the California Charter Schools Association, which is the, the primary advocacy group for charters within the state. We see them jumping into this race backing the challengers. So they're backing four challengers. The incumbents, generally speaking, are the ones who are being endorsed by the AFT and the teachers union. The challengers are the ones who are being endorsed by the California Charter Schools Association because they want to see a change. They feel like charter schools have gotten denied in the past couple of years for weak reasons for watery reasons, and we've reported on some of that and think that there's some truth to that. So they want to make sure that the the people who are approving their applications are giving them a fair shot and, and, and see the potential value of charter schools. Now we're going to talk with Andy again about the five-way city attorney's race. Mm, yes. Uh, okay, so there's one Republican, uh, Bob Hickey, who is a deputy district attorney. He is odds-on favorite to make it through uh, this primary into a runoff in November. Um, so he is uh, running on a promise to kind of whip into shape the city's uh, misdemeanor prosecution division based on his experience in, uh, as a prosecutor with the district attorney's office. Um, and then there are four four Democrats vying to join him on the November ballot. Uh, there is Rafael Castellanos, who is a port commissioner. Uh, Rafael has kind of made his case for himself on uh, that that he represents. De- he's uh, used to representing developers. He knows how to get these sorts of big, complicated uh, business and development deals done, and uh, the city could benefit from having somebody with that that savvy experience um, when it puts together those deals for things like uh, a potential f- football stadium or a convention center. Uh, there is Gil Cabrera who is a former uh, chairman of the city's ethics commission. He's also on the convention center corporation board. Um, he is kind of, he, he, he's uh, like his first ad for instance, uh, was based on um, all, similarly to, to Hickey was based on the misdemeanor prosecution division and specifically about uh, domestic assaults, which uh, is one of the, the more serious crimes that city city attorneys handle. Um, and then, uh, there's Mara Elliott. She is a uh, chief deputy city attorney right now. Um, so she has not raised nearly as much money as either Cabrera or Castellanos, um, which is certainly to her disadvantage. To her advantage, however, is the fact that not many people really understand what a city attorney does or what a city attorney is. And she she will have the benefit of right there on the ballot saying that she's a city attorney. Um, so for people who are a little bit less sure about what exactly is going on, that'll certainly seem like she's quite qualified. 
um, she has kind of made the case that you know she before this she was a high level attorney with the uh, San Diego County uh, Legal Council, and before that she had represented uh, she she was a attorney for um, a predecessor for the Metropolitan Transit System. And she also uh, has worked for legal counsel or for school boards. So she's kind of a legal counsel for public agencies. And then there's Brian Peace. Brian Peace is a um, uh, environmental attorney who has sued the city a lot. And he has kind of made a case for himself as uh, a guy who will be uh, more of an attorney for the people as opposed to uh, a legal representative for political entities. And so... We've seen that the mayor's race is a little like lacking in fireworks this time around. And this has actually turned out to be pretty much the marquee race, at least in June so far. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think about how that change is going into November? Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to there'll definitely be. I mean, it's every expectation that Mayor Faulkner will win in June. So that won't even be on the ballot. And so um, the competition for attention will be even lower in November. Um, it's all, it would also at that point be more of a straightforward, presumably it'll be a more of a straightforward Republican versus Democratic race. And you'll probably see uh, kind of people, you know, shift themselves into their respective teams. Um, right now, there's been a little bit of fighting on the Democratic side, as you would imagine, considering that there's four Democrats going against each other. Uh, so I, it's just a weird race, though, because it's citywide. So you have to. You have to appeal to voters in all the districts, which makes everything you all your voter outreach is more expensive than it is at the city council level. But it's pretty hard to raise money for a, for a city attorney race because there's just not that sort of uh, one to one relationship between needs and requests that you typically get from a donor to a politician uh, with the city attorney's office. So uh, the, there has been a little maybe less attention than I uh citywide than I think there's been within the political class, only because there's just not enough money in the race to put together a full-throated citywide campaign, really, in a lot of ways. All right. Now we have our friend. You may know him. I feel like this is the crossover episode of Friends where there were some characters from Mad About You. (laughs) His name is Scott Lewis. (laughs) He works on another podcast that you might be familiar with. What's up, my man? <laughs> he is going to talk funny, about the that's race. That's what Keats does on our show. <laughs> uh-huh. Tell us about the race for mayor. It's kind of a lame race. Why is that? It's just not a good race. I don't know. It's just uh, you know, it, it feels like a couple of people were like, "Well, we should run," and someone <laughs> should. And then, and then the mayor, yeah, you know, God love him. He's just not the most electric guy. You know, he's not, uh, that's kind of his whole vibe is not yeah, electric. Exactly. He's, uh, he's, he's just, he plays it cool. You know, that's just his thing. His whole, you know, he's, he's quite amazing at, and I, and I think rather genius at reading the politics to do the most uncontroversial thing possible at every step. I made a joke. I was at a, uh, a debate or a panel in Point Loma and uh, deep Point Loma, you know, like not just like Liberty Station Point Loma, like deep Point Loma. And wooded area? We <laughs> yeah. talking wooded area? We're talking <laughs> Shelter Island there, you know, like the yacht club zone and uh, full of Kevin Faulkner. Like this is his base, right? This is where he, you know, close to where he lives. It's where he ran for a long time as city council. And and I made a joke, you know, he just, he'd, he'd made it known that he wasn't going to run for governor. Or he said, oddly, he said, I'll be here for four years. So, like, maybe he's just not confirming exactly that he might lose or something. Move the capital, move the... <laughs> yeah. Mansion. So, I, I, I announced it to everybody. I'm like, look, he said this today. It's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, and, I, and then I joked, it seems like it's the boldest thing he's ever done is to announce that he's not running for governor. But it also and, says something about this race that we're talking about a different race and yeah. explaining it. Yeah. That's how uninteresting it is. Yeah, exactly. And I said that. I thought it was funny. And I got a couple of laughs. And then everybody's like, ooh, ooh. And the lady in the front was like, don't editorialize. And I'm like, oh, it's just a don't joke. Don't editorialize, editor Scott, was, who we invited <laughs> because you're the editor. 
it's just a joke, uh, but uh, but wrong venue for that one. But he does have people running against him. Yes, Ed Harris and, and Lori Saldana. Yes, uh, Lori's running as an independent. She's not a Democrat. Um, Ed Harris, longtime lifeguard chief, known him for a while. He's... Uh, he he's he was a long t- he he did a lot of uh, insidery stuff for a long time you know well broke the lifeguards away for example from they used to be represented by the largest city employee union the municipal employees union municipal employees association he had a big rivalry with the former uh, GM of that group uh, Judy Italiano and uh, and they did not like each other and he pulled uh, the lifeguards away now they're represented by Teamsters which is part of the uh, Labor Council, and then he was appointed to uh, City Council when when uh, Kevin Faulkner become became mayor, and uh, and he's you know he's got the itch. Feels like it feels like the city's calling him. So what has been his main pitch? What has been Lori Saldana's main pitch? Is it just we're not Kevin Faulkner, and someone should probably do this? I guess. Yeah, I, I think what was interesting about Ed's. Ed Harris's big pitch is that his his thing is that the mayor's not running the city competently, and he's basing that on, in particular, public safety, the retention crisis that's at, of of officers, and of the nine one one dispatch crisis of people not uh, uh, getting a hold of the dispatchers fast enough to to deal with their emergency. And so, you know, his argument is like that that's just a that's a cancer from the top. He's he, he was at the Ocean Beach Town Council, and he made the case he thought that unless Shelly Zimmerman could turn things around around quickly uh, at the police department that she should be fired. And I thought that was interesting. So it's a little farther than he went when he appeared on this show. Yeah. He didn't come out and see, I think she should be fired again. It was, there was one intermediary. There's like, still gonna, you know, if I give her a better leadership, maybe she'll fix it. But if at that point she can't, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's look, I think Lori's in there. Clearly she's like, look, I just want to have a good discussion. And I, I like this debate. Um, and I think Ed thinks that, you know, look, there's a chance uh, he could come in and, and not win in the primary. And, and then in November with Trump and all that, maybe uh, there's, a, there's a Faulkner nightmare scenario where, where, uh, where this anti-Trump wave combines with uh, frustration about the Chargers leaving or something. And bam, um, Ed Harris is mayor. What a world that would be. Yeah, and then, of course, Lori Saldana, I, you know, without labor, without sort of the network power of the Democratic Party, I, I don't know that she gets to that second spot. But there was a poll yesterday, a weird Facebook poll uh, by the Independent Voter Network that said that she was actually the one in second place, not Ed Harris. But Do more people know who she is than Ed Harris, just generally? Probably. I mean, she did represent the major assembly district in the city of San Diego. Uh, for, yeah, her for big a while. talking point is that she's garnered more votes, um, you know, in her experience as a candidate than Kim Faulkner ever has. Yeah, and of course, Ed has never won an election except for among lifeguards. They're people too. They are. He's a waterman. You know, he's a big public. He talks about he's a marine a lot. You know, he's he's got that sort of like uh, I I I. I'll cut a shark open to get somebody's watch out kind of thing, you know, like that's, that's, that's Ed Harris. That's uh, a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, he's, he's, uh, he, he wants to protect the city and yeah, he's he, one thing it's interesting about him. He owns properties. He's, uh, somehow built up a, a nice, uh, stable of properties over his time and, uh, rents those out and fixes them up. Just a, he's an interesting guy. He's a classic San Diego lives in Point Loma too. Um, bros. Yeah. One lady and two bros. The yeah. race for San Diego mayor. Yeah. Sarah Libby's going to explain one of the political dominoes we're dealing with. Tony Adkins is uh, running for Senate to replace Marty Block. Um, when she's leaving, Todd Gloria is pretty much a lock on her seat. So we talked to Lisa about the D3 race, but she's going to talk about the Gloria race because he does have an opponent for Assembly, 78th Assembly District. That's right. And also I would add that Tony Atkins isn't so much replacing Marty Block as she is pushing him out the door. <laughs> um, so that that has already been decided. Um, but yeah, so one of the interesting things, you know, maybe a year or so ago when we were trying to discover whether we would have a legitimate mayor's race. All the names in the conversation on the Democrat side were Lorena Gonzalez, Tony Atkins, and Todd Gloria. 
So Lorena is staying in the in the assembly. Like you said, Tony um, has decided to run for the state Senate um, instead of running for mayor. And Todd Gloria also has decided to just camp out in this safe assembly seat instead of doing something that all San Diego Democrats seem to be averse to doing, which is taking a risk and running for mayor. So um, he's running for the 78th Assembly District. Um, He's got a pretty good deal of money um, and is very familiar to voters um, of that district as a councilman for the overlapping area. Um, But, you know, on an earlier podcast, we did talk to Kevin Melton, who is a Republican. Um, He's a retired businessman, and he uh, ran for the same seat a few years ago um, and came in, I think, third or fourth out of three or four candidates in the race. Whenever he's run, he's come in last in the field. Right. He ran for a couple races in Los Angeles also. Um, So... He is a businessman, and as far as we could tell from our interview with him, his issues seem to be uh, cutting regulations and taxes for businesses. Um, One interesting thing that he said is that um, he's going to donate a big portion of his salary to local classrooms in his district. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's one of the proposals that he's got going on. Um, And, you know, he told us he's really just banking on this idea of voters – um, recognizing his business acumen and his experience, um, and he thinks that that will help him overcome just this enormous name ID that that Todd Gloria has. Kevin Melton also hasn't, um, to my knowledge, filed any sort of um, campaign finance forms indicating that he's gotten a substantial amount of donations. He told us they were coming. The latest that I searched, which was yesterday, <laughs> um, indicated he still hadn't filed those yet. Um, I'm sure I'll hear from him if that's wrong. Today we're recording on May 26th. So that was the last time that I checked. Um, So, you know, he's got a big uphill climb in terms of money and name ID. Um, But yeah, that's that's the old 78th, the fight in 78th. So the lion's share of the measures um, citywide that people are going to see on their ballot this time around really have a lot to do with cleaning up city charter language and sort of arcane rules surrounding the city charter. But then apart from that, there are two bigger measures that are going to go before people. So Andy's here to talk about something we've been hearing about for a long time and is finally happening sort of. Um, and that's the rebuild San Diego measure. What is the deal? Yeah, underline sort of in that this is finally happening. So asterisk. Uh, yeah, asterisk on this is finally happening is so four years ago there was a wide understanding. It was mentioned by people in their opening addresses after they w- they were elected that four years from now we were going to have enough time to put together uh, a full process to build a ballot measure that would allow us to increase taxes and pay for all the infrastructure needs that the city had accumulated over years of financial neglect. Um, and it's like a jaw-dropping number. Yeah, it's a jaw I mean it's it's on paper it's at least 1.4 billion dollars that the independent budget analyst has already accounted for. There's every expectation that it's more than that, but we know that it the bare minimum is 1.4 billion dollars. So um the, there the idea was well we'd spend 4 years Kind of building a project list and uh, restore, you know, kind of making some uh, some reforms that would make spending more efficient and more quickly more happen more quickly, so that when we went to voters and asked for uh, this additional revenue, that they would have the trust that the city knows would know what to do with it. Um, Somewhere along the line, someone dropped the ball or somebody lost their nerve or people decided that they actually didn't favor that idea. One thing or another happened, but that plan that was sketched out early on just never happened. And instead, what we have is Proposition H, which is a um, an infrastructure you said Preparation H, right? I so uh, did you, I don't know if you saw this last night, but Ed Harris said that on a, a, a oh dear god on a, in a mayoral debate last night. I don't uh, know. You mean if, I got beat to a joke by Ed Harris? That's I, pretty bad. Well, it was uncle- I listened to it like four or five times. I'm not sure if he was joking or he it was oh, okay. a slip of the tongue. Just it, to be clear, mine was a hilarious joke. <laughs> Who's to say what? His yes. Was? Okay. Go on. So it's it's an infrastructure lockbox, which is so it 
would say it sets the baseline at the year 2016 for all the tax revenue that the city collects. And it says any any revenue above that level going forward, you just off the top, you take half of that new money and you put it into this infrastructure box, basically. A lockbox. A lockbox. An actual physical lockbox. <laughs> like one of the little uh, pink ones with the, the little twist twist key. And then Mark Kersey, who created this plan, is going to put it under his bed or his <laughs> yes, pillow or exactly. what? Exactly. So if, let's say we, for to use round numbers, let's say we collected $100 in revenue this year. Uh, next year, if we collected $110 in revenue, we would take five bucks and throw it into this infrastructure fund that would go to pay for new infrastructure. And it mandates that the city council can't in future years just cut its general spending on infrastructure, um, which would be like a way around uh, this this supposed mandate that they continually increase the amount of money they spend on infrastructure needs. Um, and so the idea is that over the course of time, this will start eating into the uh, the city's accumulated needs for infrastructure. The problem is that we have $1.4 billion in known needs right now. And the independent budget analyst's own uh, study says that this would pay for about $140 to $200 million over the next five years. And over the next five years is when we are in an infrastructure crisis. Like we have a crisis right now. We don't Solving it 25 years from now, even if you believe that that's going to happen, isn't really any doesn't really tell us anything about our needs today. We have needs today. This would put 200 million dollars roughly towards that goal uh, within the next five years. Meanwhile, that will do that won't even get us to the point that we are in an acceptable position. It will just slow the rate at which things are getting worse. And and that's because. This doesn't ask for any new money. It just says we're gonna get new money anyway. Yeah. This is it how we're just gonna spend it. Ties our hands in how we're gonna spend it. Yeah. And and now to their credit, what what uh, Councilman Kersey would say is, if this very measure were passed twenty five years ago, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, and so it's it's it is the the ideological argument in favor of it is that. Uh, infrastructure is a basic responsibility of the city, and our budgetary process so far has not taken that responsibility seriously enough. So we're taking that choice out of the hands of future councils, um, and we're asking voters to do that. Basically, it seems like the best pitch for this is it's not nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's better than nothing. Yeah. Which I mean, it's kind of close to nothing in in the in the grand scheme of the problem it the only it's not something yeah the only, but it's i mean it's not nothing it's it's not nothing over uh over 25 years where in over which time the independent budget analyst says that it could raise like 4 billion dollars over 25 years which sounds like a big number but you have to spread out the amount of that spending over 25 years as well um so sure that's a lot of money but we have serious needs today, and by this bill, this prop, uh, proposition's own admission, it does not solve those needs today. And so basically it's the city council who's said, elect us, we're going to make good decisions, saying, actually, you elected us, now pass this ballot measure so we can't make bad decisions. No, not even we. You elected us to make decisions. Now we're going to ask you to make the decision for our successors over the next few decades to make sure they don't make bad decisions. Okay. And then the other city measure that we're going to talk about is the minimum wage. And this is something that has kind of fluctuated over the last couple of years as it's going to be a really big deal and maybe it's not going to be that big a deal. And now the state passes on minimum wage and it's not going to be a big deal. And maybe now it's still not a big deal. What kind of a deal is it? So it depends on who you ask. Um, this will be on your ballot as Proposition I if you're in the city of San Diego. It would raise the minimum wage and guarantee up to 40 hours of sick leave uh, to workers inside the city of San Diego. Uh, it is in some ways uh, made moot by the increase in the statewide minimum wage, which will be $15 an hour in 2022. But for a couple of years, um, up until uh, about uh, 2020, um, some employees are better off 
with if Prop I is in effect, because both the city minimum wage will go up gradually and the state minimum wage will go up gradually, but the city minimum wage will go up a little bit faster um, then the state minimum wage will go up. So there'll be a couple of years where you're, where you're going to be better off having the city min- minimum wage in place uh, than just waiting around for the state minimum wage to go up. Um, so that would be good if you want your wage to be higher. If you don't want wages to be higher, which is uh, something the Chamber of Commerce is obviously concerned about, um, they've pointed out that it creates um, a real uh, potential problem for city businesses, um, particularly city businesses that are uh, bordering uh, other cities uh, or competing with other cities in the county um, for you know cutting costs because you'll have to pay your your workers more for a few years than uh, say Chula Vista or National City or a business somewhere anywhere else in the county would pay. Um, so businesses oppose it uh, for that reason and for, for the, the sick leave uh, reason, which is not something that the state minimum wage law uh, took care of. Yeah. And so it seems like, you know, labor advocates um, are really pointing to this sick leave piece of the puzzle and saying, yes, the, the state um, helped us out in terms of giving us more wages, but but that measure doesn't deal with sick days at all. And so this um, would come with a is it two or three guaranteed sick days um, over a year-long period? And and that's something that people see as as a pretty big deal. And it doesn't get talked about a lot um, because most of the discussion tends to center around the, the dollar figure. So it guarantees up to uh, five days a year, 40 hours um, a year of uh, sick leave. Um, so if you're in favor of, you know, more benefits and higher wages, you're going to want to vote for this. Um, whether you're a fan or uh, of the state minimum wage, um, and if you're they oppose the state minimum wage, you're obviously going to want to vote, vote against this because there's some temporary benefit um, to to keeping down employee costs. Sarah's going to talk to us about a statewide ballot measure uh, for lawmakers that get in trouble. What's going on? So this is the only state measure that you'll find on the ballot in June. We expect there to be approximately a bajillion in November, but this is the only one that you need to remember. Um, In June, it is Prop 50, and like Rice said, it deals with um, legislators who have gotten into a bit of trouble. So say they are charged with a crime or they just do something to generate, um, you know, hurt feelings and bad vibes and all that. Um, So... Currently, if a legislator gets in trouble, um, they could be suspended with pay or they could be recalled or or voted out entirely. So suspended with pay or all the way out of the legislature. Expelled. They could be expelled by the legislature. Yes. So this proposal um, offers a little in between, and that is to be suspended without pay. Um, And the thinking there is that, you know, if you're facing these serious charges, you shouldn't be collecting a paycheck. Fair enough. So a yes vote on Prop 50 would be you think that is a good option that legislators should have to vote to suspend one of their members without pay. Now, the argument against that is that this could be a tool that gets wielded against people who have unpopular opinions or who stand up for something that's unpopular um, as opposed to being charged with a crime. Or it could be used, you know, as a vindictive kind of tool. Um, and another argument against it is that it sort of leaves voters hanging without a representative. And so if you expel them entirely, that would trigger, you know, a special election and the voters in that district would eventually get a new person who could vote on their behalf. Um, but suspending them without pay just kind of leaves them in limbo. So that's it. All right, man, if you stuck through all of that, God bless you and good luck at the polls. I hope that we gave you something um, to think about and to help you make some good decisions. You're definitely, hopefully, ready to vote on June 7th. I think you're ready. I believe in you guys. Um, let's talk about our favorite things this week. What What do you have, Rye? I have All the Way, the HBO show on Lyndon Johnson and the Civil Rights uh, Act of 1964. And uh, it's pretty good. It's it's, uh, you know, it's not as good as the Robert Caro biographies of Lyndon Johnson, which I'm slowly making my way through. Um, but it shows a, a politician who's in office 
and decides to do something bold uh, with his time um, in the nation's highest office. Um, he uses a lot of political machinations, um, makes a lot of enemies, breaks a lot of friendships, um, but pushes through something that ultimately was good for the country. Um, and that's not something you can say about everybody in office. I can't wait to watch it. I went last year to the LBJ Museum in Austin, and let me tell you, I went buck wild in that gift shop. If you need some LBJ swag, I'm your girl. I'm uh, I'm making my way through the books, and it's an amazing what a complicated figure he was. Um, you know, what the, the movie alludes to but doesn't really get at is how he started uh, his political career, particularly in the Senate, um, really throwing himself in with the Southern um, uh, segregationist uh, block of the Democratic Party and, and eventually uh, changed uh, the entire national dynamic. All right. Well, my favorite thing is not as noble as that, but we're talking about covering elections and my favorite thing is San Diego's newfound um, love of cold brew coffee. Um, so Kinsey Moreland, um, our pal, uh, did a story a couple months ago about the rise of, you know, quality brewing and coffee in San Diego. And so I'm narrowing that down specifically to cold brew. There are a couple cold brews I would like to shout out. Por Vida in Barrio Logan as a horchata cold brew. Amazing. Quite good. And um, I know you and I have differed a bit when it comes to wholesome coffee in North Park, um, but they do a banana bread cold brew that is also to die for. So I'm going to be drinking a lot of it between now and June 7th, particularly on June 7th. I'm going to be loaded up. Um, This may be the widest favorite thing I've ever, you know, had, but that's where I'm at, cold brew. I have to give a shout out as a a downtown worker to West Bean, my daily cold brew go-to. It's so good, and they have a kryptonite with mint that is the most refreshing thing that you will find. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, As you probably heard, uh, it was a lot of people talking about a lot of things, and that sometimes takes a lot of money. And we could use some of yours. Uh, Please visit, if you'd like, to donate, uh, voiceofsandiego.org slash donate. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.